I didn't realize you'd taken out a second mortgage on your house. Props to your wife on that one. That's incredible. (laughs) Thank God you succeeded. I know, right? Yeah, it's (laughs) it's nothing that I really, I don't suggest that for everybody. It just kind of worked for us. Uh, And yeah, I'm I'm thankful it it worked out. And she was was amazing through the process. She's a firm believer in like, if you really feel led to do something, you've got to do it. I'm Heidi Berkey. And I'm Rachel Goble. And this is the Ethical Storytelling Podcast. Gotta keep it fun. (laughs) Welcome to the Ethical Storytelling Podcast Storyteller Series. We're interviewing filmmakers, photographers, and writers in the NGO or impact space to learn how they apply or have failed at applying ethical storytelling in their work. Today I have the honor of talking with Benjamin Edwards, a photographer and filmmaker who documents weddings but describes his work with NGOs as his sole work. Um, I could have reached out in some way. I, I, I guess what it comes down to, Rachel, is I could have given instead of taken. I took an image of him. I, I took him at his lowest low. I took his dignity and, and I justified it to try to fit the cause that I was there to try to fight. We don't have all the answers, so join us in this conversation. Here we go. So you and I met in the context of some of your like development or nonprofit international work. So can you tell me a little bit about how you went from photography to also film production and photography for NGOs? Absolutely. Uh, so the, really, it's, it's, it's been based on relationships. Um, every organization that I've worked with, every trip that I've been on, has been a result of of a relationship of somebody recommending me or um so that's that's how i got connected with the freedom story and and the amazing work that you guys are doing was through a a mutual friend um who who mentioned that uh might be fun to have me come along and i think from a storytelling standpoint um kind of going from still photography which I, i still do a lot of it's just been a natural progression of storytelling for me um just the love of film like to take to take a, a powerful still image is, is amazing, but when you, I just feel like it's amplified when you take those images and you, you start telling moving stories and you're adding music and these different elements and, and it becomes more of a, a, a team putting it together. Um, those are really powerful to me and, and um, coupling it with uh, organizations who are doing incredible work on the ground and they need to have their, their stories told um, it's just, it's win-win for me. That's, that's my sole work. I still mm-hmm. photograph weddings, uh, to pay bills and, and, and there's things that I love about weddings, but man, the sole work comes when I'm on the ground with people who every day are just giving their lives, uh, for their fellow people and organizations. And, uh, that's what really keeps me going. I love that you call it your sole work. Can you expand on that a little bit more? What is it about the the work that um, makes it really come alive for you as a passion. I'll, I'll never forget um, standing in a, in a field in a village in Uganda. It was probably 2006 and, and really Rachel for the first time in my life, other than, you know, standing at, at the altar with my wife on our wedding day, it was really the first time that I had felt like I, I, I was in the right place. I was exactly where I was supposed to be at that moment. There was nowhere else in the world 
that I should have been other than standing there telling those stories. Hmm. I'll never forget that. And, and every time I take a trip like that, um, as much work as it is to, to, and, and difficult to leave the family and the business and the preparation. And I, I, I don't travel well physically, but once I'm there, um, it's, it's exactly where I'm supposed to be. And so I call it my soul work because it's something that I look forward to. It's something that keeps me going. And I've, I've learned so much about the world and other people and myself through those experiences. Yeah. So what I think is so interesting about this series, which is our storyteller series, uh, is it's at its core, I think, exploring the power dynamics that are present in the telling of stories. And so as you share like that specific example, right, of you standing in this field and saying there's nowhere else that you're that you'd rather be at that point in time, that same reality um, is that you are the outsider and you're coming into a culture and you're still telling stories in this culture um, of, a, of a country and of a people that are, are, are not your own. Right. And so mm-hmm. can you speak to that tension at all? Because I know that you've, you've expressed that and you feel that and you recognize that. So how do you navigate that? That's a great question. And, and in fact, I don't, I don't think I could navigate it if it were not for, um, for the people on the ground with us. That's something that we teach in our, in our workshops that, um, that deal with, you know, telling, telling stories for humanitarian organizations or nonprofits is that it's so important to, to do it alongside the folks that, that live there, um, so that we're not coming in with our own um, ideas and concepts and forcing them and, and bending the story in that manner. It's got to come from, uh, from a local indigenous uh, uh, standpoint. Um, and that is difficult because the reality is a lot of our, um, the people who are going to see these, these stories are, you know, for the most part, Westerners. And mm-hmm. so it's it is difficult to bridge that gap of this is an ethical, accurate story from their standpoint, but yet we really need to communicate um, to these to these Westerners who, who haven't been on the ground. They, they haven't experienced this. And, and um, so, again, I just I, I think I go into it now more than I ever have. There's certainly been examples of times where I haven't navigated that well. Um, and I just try to be mindful of utilizing the people who are on the ground who know best and always, always, always deferring to their better judgment. So I love that you just shared that you have had times where you haven't navigated that well. Can you share one of those times and how that's (laughs) continually shaped you? Because we all have those times and I think it's incredibly important to talk about them, to name them, to own them. Uh, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sure that even 10 years from now, we're going to be looking back and, and having those same reflections of how we're acting now. So can you share one of those times um, with us? Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it is embarrassing because you look back and you think, <laughs> oh, I should have known better. But I think the reality is we're all just trying to do the best that we can with what we have. Sure. The, the one time that that really stands out to me, and I'm sure there's there's many others, but when it really clicked for me personally without really having somebody there to mentor me and tell me was 
uh, in Nicaragua, I was photographing for an organization who was working in La Chereca, the, the dump there where, um, you know, many families lived inside and, and young girls were being trafficked just so that their parents could have access to better garbage. I mean, it's, it's, mm. it's the lowest of the low. And we were in there in the dump storytelling, uh, for this organization. And, and I'll never forget walking into this, um, I, I guess you could call it a village. We went through a little gate and we were there doing an interview and I looked over and there was a man, um, laying in a puddle and, uh, just squirming and, and just it, it, very clearly he had been drinking a lot and just kind of nearly passed out, but just moaning and laying in this puddle and he was filthy. Um, it was, it was a very disturbing image and mm-hmm. the, the locals there, um, you say, oh, just ignore him. He's just, you know, he's a drunk or he's got issues or whatever. And and for whatever reason, I I took a, a photo of him in that in that position at that time and it, and and um, captured it. And you know, there was no there was no reason for it other than I think perhaps at that time I was um, I was following a lot of photojournalists in the media. And I think at that point, maybe I justified it by saying, Hey, I'm just capturing the situation as it is here. You know, I was mm. photographing children sifting, you know, through trying to find something to eat in the dump. And so this was just a part of that. Mm-hmm. Like there was a moment there where I could have, instead of raising my camera, I could have walked over to see if he needed anything. I could have, um, I could have reached out in some way. I, I, I guess what it comes down to, Rachel, is I could have given instead of taken. I took an image of him. I, I took him at his lowest low. I took his dignity and, and I justified it to try to fit the cause that I was there to try to fight. And it, it wasn't right away, but a few weeks afterward, I was, I was going through and calling and looking, looking at the images from that trip. And I was ashamed of myself mm. that the, the photo served no purpose for the work that I was doing. And again, I don't know if it was just, Hey, I'm trying to be, you know, photojournalist Ben or, you know, take these captivating images to, to put on the blog or whatever it was. But I try to be, so mindful of that now and yeah. to try to put myself in that position. What if that was me? What if that was my child? What if that was my dad or grandfather? And that's so critical. So just to play devil's advocate here for a second, um, let's take today's Rohingya crisis, which for those of us that follow that, like there's really disturbing images and stories and realities coming out of right now what I would consider to be one of the largest world atrocities that we're seeing today. And so kind of going back to this, this um, story that you share, I think that there's plenty activists and organizations that might argue that these images do need to get out and that 
that telling the story um, in a dignifying way also includes releasing these images of the incredibly harsh realities that people are facing. And so what would you say to them or how might you guide them towards um, a more dignifying way of telling story for the long term, recognizing that these images might still be online 20 years from now? Right. There are probably storytellers out there who um, have no issue gathering that type of media, that type of content. For me, just based on my, my travels and what I've seen and the people that I've spoken to, it is nearly impossible for me now not to put myself in their shoes. So when there are these crazy world events happening, when there is so much bad and it needs to be exposed so that good things can hopefully come, um, I, need to, I need to have permission. I need, mm -hmm. to, I need to know that it's okay from these people that the images that I'm taking or the, the video, the, what I'm filming they need to know my heart behind it. I'm not there just to grab and, and steal these images so that I can get a paycheck or that my boss is going to be happy that I got, you know, a front page image um, or that the organization is going to raise a ton of money because of this fly in the eye type of imagery. I need to know I, there has to be an exchange there for me with these are, these are people, these are souls. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the only thing, the, the only difference between what's happening there and where we live is infrastructure. You tear our infrastructure away and it could be a foreign journalist coming in, taking photos of my children. Yeah. So for me personally, I need to have an exchange there where I know that they're okay with me um, making this content in hopes that it's going to better their situation, yeah. if, if at all possible. So you mentioned permission. Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. So explain a little bit more what you mean when you say permission. And even if you have like a certain workflow that you go through when you're on the ground, what that looks like. Well, I mean, it's different in any situ in, in every situation. Uh, a lot of times there's a language barrier. And that's why I think it's always important to have somebody on the ground who um, understands the culture and the language. But as far as workflow goes, um, with photography, we will try to have a, um, uh, a photo release printed in, um, in the native language uh, and have somebody explain it to the person that we're photographing or filming. And they sign it um, if they can. If not, we can do a verbal release on uh, video. Um, if I'm just doing a strictly photographic workflow, that release is photographed and um, sits alongside those images when I'm culling. It never leaves. And I can put some of that in the meta tags, like the name of the person. And um, that's something that, I've, that I feel strongly about that I'm trying to do better is that it, if I post a picture, if we use a picture, like there is a name there. This person has a name. They have a story and it deserves to be told. So I'm, I'm trying to keep better track of, um, of just the person, their name and their story mm -hmm. and where they live. And, and as much info of that as I can keep in the metadata of the image, the better. Mm -hmm. um, so I always try to keep those alongside, um, whether they're, they're written or in video form. So you've led something called, is it Workshops for Purpose? Workshops with Purpose? 
workshops with purpose. Yeah. <laughs> I can never remember. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I know you've been leading these workshops with purpose uh, for quite a while. And can, one, can you just explain what they are? And then secondly, I'd love to hear kind of what your goal is and maybe some of the changes that you've seen in the individuals that have come on these trips. Right. Yeah. So uh, Workshops with Purpose was really born out of um, just being contacted by, by people saying, hey, we love what you're doing. Like, you know, photographers, like, we love what you're doing. Like, how do we do that? So um, my friends, uh, Marianne and Andrew Nicodem and, and Kevin Kubota, another good friend of mine, uh, we were all kind of being contacted by people because we were doing similar work. And the resounding, like, just like, hey, we want to know how to do this. And so we put together um, our first workshop in Kenya and asked uh, storytellers, photographers to come along and, hey, would you be interested in paying for this workshop? And we'll show you how to go in and work with organizations um, in an ethical way and um, how to create imagery on the ground that's um, uh, dignifying to the people that you're, you're um, telling stories for. And, and uh, it, it was amazing. It was incredible. Um, first of all, it was, it was just encouraging to know that there are people out there who want to do this the right way. Mm. Um, and of course, as time goes on, we're, we're developing what that right way is and we're continuing that conversation. But um, it was encouraging to know that people out there care enough to do this work and, and care enough to do it right. And so uh, we told some amazing stories for a, a nonprofit um, hospital that was just, uh, they're just doing incredible, incredible work in a difficult area. And it was so successful that we put on another one in Bolivia, uh, working with Food for the Hungry, and then uh, also uh, partnered with uh, an amazing organization called the Freedom Story in <laughs> Thailand. Um, so a lot of these photographers have gone on to work with other organizations and I see them out doing this work and I'm, I'm just super proud of them mm. um, and honored that they would, they'd, you know, want to take the workshop and, and go out and do this work. So when you come home from the field, yeah. what does your post-production wow. process look like? Uh, well, a lot of coffee to start things <laughs> off. Like, I am not a great traveler. So, like, when I come home, I know there are, like, so many ways to fight jet lag, but I just struggle, struggle, struggle. So, um, and it depends on the, on the trip, too. Like, you know, there was a specific trip that I took to DRC, to the Congo, that, um, man, it messed me up for years. Mm. Um, yeah. We, we were in a situation where um, we faced in one night what, what a lot of those people face every day, a rumor that the village we were in was going to be attacked that night, and it was going to happen. Like There was really good intel on it, and we all just stayed up all night praying, and like four-something in the morning, like all hell breaks loose, gunfire, mortar, everything, and we thought like that was the end, and I, I didn't. I didn't think I was going to see my family again. And, um, you know, it turned out to be that the UN was actually launching a counterstrike on this rebel group. And, you know, it turned out, it turned out to be okay, but that put an element of fear in me that just held me hostage for years. Mm. Um, mm. so when I got home from that trip, I was a mess for six weeks. Yeah. You know, you bring up a good point that 
I, I didn't even have my notes to touch on, but the idea of secondary trauma. And I think that this is something that people just aren't talking about in the storytelling very much. And you just shared a really specific and real example of what that looks like in your life. So now how do you, how do you navigate that? Right. Uh, that's, that's a great question. And I think it's something that, that does need to be discussed more and more because if this is something you're going to do and you're going to go tell stories, you're going to be faced with this. And I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I was in a hotel room in, in, um, Uganda, uh, sharing a room with our good friend, Ken Witzman, about, um, women who had undergone FGM, female genital mutilation, and just unbelievable stories of, of how that has affected these, these young ladies' lives and just the, um, the trauma that they go through. And I, I'll just never forget. I just, you know, <laughs> I was trying to be strong. Like my buddy Ken is next to me and, and we're, you know, going to sleep. And, and I just, I had to raise the blanket over my face and I just sobbed. I, I just could not hold in the, the weight that I had felt that day. And I just, I sobbed for these women who, um, Yes, they had a voice, but it, it wasn't being heard. Like they needed like the megaphone. <laughs> and like, so we were there to be the megaphone, but the weight that it, that was dropped on us by hearing these mm. stories was immense. What is it like to be a man and to be telling the stories of vulnerable women? What could you say that again? I'm sorry. Yeah, what is it like to be a man and to be telling these stories of vulnerable women? That's a great question. I I think um, depending on the stories that are being told, I think it's important um, to have a woman there um, to make people feel more comfortable. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the storytelling that I've done, Rachel has been in these situations where it's like FGM or rape. And, um, I think it's important to know what stories you're going to be telling so that the appropriate people can be there. But for me personally, it's difficult for me because I'm, you know, I'm like a hugger. Like I'm, I love to just be there for people and, and that's just where my heart is, but I can't, most of the time it's just not acceptable for me to go up and like, you know, hear a terrible story of rape and go up and just want to hug with a person. Like, so it's, it is difficult um, Mm -hmm. on a lot of levels being a guy, being out there doing that kind of work. I think too, having worked with you where you interviewed some of the women in our community in Thailand, um, I I mean, that's part of why I wanted you on this podcast. I think that you just handle stories and people and sensitive topics, um, whether it's, it's poverty or female genital mutilation, like you, you wear your heart on your sleeve in a really safe way for people. And I've always appreciated your posturing and how you show up in communities. Um, I think that there's a lot to learn from you in that. Along those lines, um, just as we start to wrap up, is there any advice that you want to leave for people, photographers, 
filmmakers, writers, or other um, storytellers that might be listening in uh, for ways that they can be um, bettering their craft towards ethical storytelling? Yeah, that's a great question. And and thank thank you for the kind words. I think what I'd kind of want to leave with is that a a lot of times these organizations, um, because of funding, they will ask storytellers to come along and you are on like whirlwind poverty tour. Like mm-hmm. it is like, okay, at one o'clock, we're going to hear this story at three o'clock. We're going to go to this village at four o'clock. We're going to be in this house, this village. And it is, it's whirlwind. And I, I think for me over time that, that really weared on me. It's like, man, like I, how do you go into these situations and hear these terrible stories and be like, well, thanks for sharing. Hey, we got to go. We got another house to go to. Like these are, these are human beings that have experienced trauma in a way that most of us in, in the West have not experienced. And they're doing something that um, is not always a part of their culture to share such a, uh, such a deep um intimate traumatic thing Mm -hmm. and so going into these situations and and again i know that you know the organizations have to they have to maximize the time of the storyteller um that's for the most part being a good steward of the funds that they were given to make it happen and i understand that but i think being conscious of as a storyteller going into these situations and really listening and making making the person telling the story feel like they've been heard is extremely important. Mm. And so beyond all the like, yeah, get pretty images and pretty film and like put a sick edit together and make it awesome. At the end of the day, we're talking about human beings. And so when you're on the ground, if it's a hand on the shoulder, when it's appropriate, if it's holding hand, if it's appropriate, if it's just making eye contact and letting the person know that they're amazing in whatever way you feel led at that time, do it. Like make it human, make it relational. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, I guess that's, that's the thing that's heavy on my heart. Well, and earlier on in the conversation, you said two things that I'm hearing you repeat kind of throughout the whole conversation. And the first of those is that this is your soul work. And I think the heart of who you are is relational and you bring that into every context that you walk into, regardless of where you are and the heaviness of those stories. And you also talked about you're not just there to take, um, but you're also there to give. And one of the really tangible ways in which I've seen you do that is simply by traveling with your little travel printer. And I know it's so nerdy, but you leave the images behind that you take with people. And I've gone back to these communities and these villages three or four years later, and those images are still hanging on their refrigerator or, you know, on the wall. And that matters to people. And so I think that concept of give and take um, that you're talking about, I, I think you execute the give really beautifully as, and as much as you can in those contexts. I think it's it, important for us when we go into these situations to always feel like we gave more than we take. Mm-hmm. And whether it's bringing a portable printer into the field so that we can leave behind an image of a mother and daughter or you know, whatever it may be, 
um, to, to be able to give something um, back. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, we're all like, it's all relational. We're all relational. We're all a part of this, this planet. And um, I, I think that that's just, it, it gets lost. I think whether it's social media or distraction in one form or another, like at the end of the day, we need to remember we're all humans. We're all brothers and sisters. It's all relational. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we just, we just need to get a little, you know, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for being so awesome and taking the time to share with us today. I think there were a lot of really good nuggets of wisdom um, that I'm going to walk away with for sure. So thanks for taking the time, friend. It has been a pleasure and an honor. And let's go eat some bugs or something (laughs) together, all right? I do miss eating bugs with you. I know, right? Yeah. You're my bug (laughs) friend. Soon enough. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much, Ben. Hey, folks, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. You really should check out Benjamin's work at BenjaminEdwardsPhotography.com. When you're done with that, go check out EthicalStorytelling.com for more resources and to subscribe to our mailing list. And most of all, tell your friends about ethical storytelling. It's small and a labor of love. We all do this because we want to see change. So help us spread the word with your family and friends. Before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to everyone that helped on the show this week. First, you all, the listeners, for tuning in. Lauren Ellis for web support, music by Broke for Free, and Kyle Hara for producing and editing each episode. Be sure to join us next week. All right, Kyle. I don't know how to stop it.